Hello and welcome to the latest Health on the Line. This week I'm on the road looking at some fantastic primary practice in Peterborough, so do listen to that. But before I take you to Peterborough, here's some highlights from the last few days. First, I think you might be interested in the lecture I gave to the Royal Society of Medicine last week. It was the annual Stevens lecture. I I tried to lay out a a kind of vision of an NHS renewed and talked about what I thought were some of the key things that we needed to achieve that. I talked about the need for investment, but also to understand that investment isn't just pouring money into a black hole, but is investment in our economy and our society. I talked about the need to invert the pyramid, to have an NHS where each level empowers and enables the level below, and ultimately we empower and enable patients and the public themselves. I talked about the need for the leftward shift of resources. How do we get money proportionately out of the acute sector and upstream into primary prevention community? Of course, it's impossible to do now because of the pressure on acute, but if we were to have more money, how can we tilt it more upstream? And I talked about the need for a new social contract with the public, emphasising the incredible importance of public attitudes, behaviours, the way the public uses the health service for the sustainability of what we're doing. So do have a look at that lecture. You can find the details uh, on the Confed website. You'll also find on the Confed website information about Confed Expo. It's now only three weeks away. And if you haven't signed up, it's still possible to join over 4,000 other delegates in Manchester on the 14th and 15th of June. It's going to be the biggest and most significant healthcare conference of the year. And it create a really strong point of focus for health and care leaders to come together at a time when we need to discuss both recovery and transformation. And then a final point, in case you'd missed it, it's a year this week since the fuller stocktake of primary care was published. As the Confed's own primary care network has said this week, the fuller stocktake contained a set of recommendations that were clear, practical, targeted. And well, one year on, we've seen lots of commitment and willingness from system and primary care leaders. But as yet, we haven't had sufficient resource. And the speed and scale of transformation is limited because of the day-to-day pressures on primary care. So we at the Confed are working with primary to help it operate at scale, to be a system and place player. And I've seen some fantastic practice in terms of primary care, having that kind of ambition, focusing on population health, working with a range of other organisations. So we'll be continuing to press hard both nationally and at system and at place level to drive forward the fuller reform agenda. But talking about fuller is also a great segue into what you're going to hear now on health on the line. It's about a visit I had to the practice of Neil Moda in Peterborough. I was really impressed with what I saw. I hope you are too. New ideas. Big debates, meeting the change makers, transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. So I've just arrived on a, in, a, in a blustery Peterborough at 
Thistlemore Medical Centre. I'm going to meet Dr. Neil Moda, who's uh, who's kind of head of this uh, empire, but also a key player when it comes to national thinking about the future of primary care. Really looking forward to talking to Neil and finding out what goes on in this kind of amazing building. Neil, hi. Hi, Matthew. Welcome. Thank you. So, even from the outside, this is a pretty impressive setup you've got here. So, so show me around. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, so this is Thistlemore Medical Centre. Um, we now care for 30,000 patients. Um, our patients come from a... 30,000? 30, 30, 30,000, yeah. So how many were you when you started? So, so my mum actually started the practice in 1994 with 700 patients. So uh, a single terrace house, one clinical room, waiting room was the staircase, you know, before the days of the CQC and things like that. Uh, and now we've got over 60 clinical rooms, uh, you know, a massive team uh, of doctors, 15 doctors, six trainees, um, tw 15 nurses, five paramedics, so a massive clinical team, over 112 staff. Wow. Uh, serving a population who don't speak English very much and so 80% uh, of them speak other languages and so we've massively diversified our team to, to meet their needs. We try and think about our rotor and reception to have people who speak different languages. So we've got people who speak Polish, Russian, Lithuanian and Asian languages uh, and so they serve the patients. Uh, and the building is split up into many zones. So we've got zones A now through to G, so A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And each zone has kind of a waiting room uh, and then it serves kind of clinical rooms down the end. So there'll be six or seven clinical rooms with a mixture of doctors, paramedics, pharmacists and, and different members of the team. So tell me about, uh, about access, because I think I'm right that Peterborough is actually one of the most underserved places in terms of GPs per head of population. So how are you tackling the kind of access? issue. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the kind of key that we've had from the start has been to kind of consider what we would call open access. So if someone needs us, we will see them. And so I guess, um, you know, the, the way that we did that before up to the pandemics um, was that if any of our patients at that time, probably 27,000 patients, if anyone needed us, they would simply come wait in a queue and we would see them. So we would, you know, we would kind of spread them out across this building according to their language preference, their clinical preference and things like that. Um, Post-pandemic now, or during the pandemic, we moved to kind of a digital triage. So people like, um, you know, do digital forms and things like that or ring us up. Right. And then we, we would aim to kind of uh, help them within the 24 hours or 48 hour period. Okay. Obviously, if a person chose to want to come in on a Thursday or next week, that's obviously absolutely fine. But generally, if someone needs us, we want to sort of deal with their case within 48 hours. And do you think that the kind of obsession with two weeks is useful? Um, I think what's important is trying to personalise it to what people need. So actually, if people want it to be in two or three weeks' time, that should be absolutely acceptable and fine. But I think as a responsive health service, giving people care majority on the same day or the next day is really important. But it depends on the problem. I guess the balance that we're always trying to strike is how much do we kind of have time for really good proactive medicine. So not even the people contacting us, but the people that we should be contacting. Right, so population health, as, as people would call it. Absolutely, yeah, or proactive care or whatever right. you want to call it. So actually, how do I look through my list of diabetics, work out which ones have got the worst diabetic control and make sure that I'm having conversations with them to make a difference to their lives and so making sure that we can both meet the needs of people asking for our help but also we're prioritizing through 
health promotion tools or health, uh, you know, health prevention tools, the right population and having enough clinical capacity for that is really important as well. Great, let's carry on with the talk. This is Zone A, uh, and so I work up here uh, in, a, in an office alongside my practice manager. Uh, and then it, what's interesting, I guess, about our clinical uh, model is that we have healthcare assistants that support us. Right. And so I'm just going to introduce you to one of our healthcare assistants. Oh, so, uh, Matthew, I've, I've not warned Hi. Paulina. This is, this Hi. is Paulina. Hi. Paulina, I'm Matthew. Hi. Nice to meet you. Paulina, you've been here now for? Uh, six, seven years. Six, seven years. Yeah. Right. So Paulina is a great example of what, what is possible. Uh, so Paulina joined us with no uh, experience of healthcare. Right. Uh, she went through a training programme that was both kind of on-site, kind of people mentoring and supporting her, also hard work that she did through her courses as well. Right. Uh, and then she, she obviously speaks Polish fluently. And right. so um, when I'm working through my patient list in the morning, I'm working here alongside Paulina. So although I've got my own room, most of the patients that want to see me will be first seen by Paulina. Okay. Uh, and so for example, this morning, we've done a number of diabetic patients who've got uncontrolled um, sugar levels. Um, four of them couldn't speak a word of English. And so actually Paulina has helped communicate with those patients, explaining what needs to be done. Uh, and also while she was waiting for me, she's been doing things like foot checks, uh, giving some health promotion, prevention advice, and then explain, and then working with me to explain what the plan is with the patient. So did you have any health experience at all before you started the job, no, Paulina? No, to be honest, not at all. So what, what, t Tell me why you applied for the job in the first place. Uh, because, um, I don't know, I just found this advertisement uh, online and I was thinking that why not? Why not to try, uh, you know, to, to work here? And I was glad that I don't have to have their experience. So, and I'm really, really happy that they gave me opportunity to to get this experience and basically to help people. So Paulina is part of the kind of health and data team. So she works with Agnieszka, who um, Agnieszka and Paulina basically look at, for example, all of our quaff registers, our, our, so our performance targets basically, oh, right. and they monitor these kind of things and they use technologies. That, so they, even with a deprived and challenged population, we use a lot of digital technology, messages, system one annex, ways of communicating. And what we found with our population is very simple messages. So if we send a really long questionnaire, 20 pages long, we will get none back. If we send a simple kind of, do you want to come in on a Saturday for a health check? Absolutely. So, um, and she's also um, kind of been doing things on health promotion, prevention, smoking cessation, exercise and diet. So, so, so as well as then some of the helping me as, you know, to consult, she also has got these other portfolios. So you have to become a technology expert as well as, a, as, as yes. your medical, your clinical yes. skills. Yes, yeah? that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Which isn't very easy, but with Agnieszka's help, um, yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you. Really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thank you. You run this kind of empire now, and you're also chair of the Fed, which is a, a, a big Fed. How important is it you still have time with patients? Yeah, I think it's really important. So, I, I, you know, for me, I think clinical leadership comes from actually doing the job. Uh, and sometimes it is difficult. It's been a really busy week this week. Uh, and so actually, you know, I've done a lot less clinical time than I would be, you know, happy right. to do. But I try and get that balance. And even, I guess I was the CCG accountable officer. And even a CCG accountable officer, I was doing three or four clinical sessions a week. So I try and keep that balance of clinical work. That helps me connect with my people, my patients, helps me understand what the challenges are on the ground but also time to do the strategic work and think about the future really.
So, uh, Neil, this has gradually been built up. I mean, uh, must, you must have been kind of adding bits to it almost every year. With the Absolutely. Year. I mean, we think that we've provided a good service for our population. We've tried to tailor our service to the needs of the people, and that's attracted people to come to our service. And as such, therefore, we've had to grow the infrastructure. Whenever we've seen we've grown, we've just acted in our patients' best interest, built on extensions, and then had conversations afterwards with our commissioners to make sure that we've, you know, the space could be right. used and all that kind of stuff. And you think, I mean, this is an aspect, I think, of general practice primary care at its best. Is that kind of entrepreneurial element? You've clearly had to be entrepreneurial. Absolutely. I mean, so let me be honest with you, Matthew. I, I came to Peterborough with my healthcare management degree, telling my parents how it should be done. Of course, you should get permission before you do anything. You know, it needs to... And then I guess realising that it's all you know, it is quite challenging to do things in that kind of bureaucratic way because we've often had permission, but then the timing to allow an extension to be done is so slow that it doesn't allow you to cater for your population. And so, and I know in the Patricia Hewitt review, that's one of her recommendations is actually, how do we move on from the way that people used to think about this to hopefully this organic patient serving yeah. growth that we've managed to obtain here. And I notice on the site, you also have a pharmacy. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Graham Young's Pharmacy, one of the oldest independent pharmacies in Peterborough. Um, we've owned it now for the last, uh, since 2007. Uh, and since November, we've taken full control of it. And I guess, you know, for me, it's, it's putting things like the fuller stock take into reality. Like how, do, if, if we're talking about primary care needing to work together, here we have the perfect opportunity to kind of almost experiment. If we can work hand in hand with community pharmacy, where can we agree what, where things need to be done? So rather than fighting over who does flu vaccinations, if we agree flu vaccinations are done, for example, in the pharmacy, that allows the surgery to focus on other things. And now with the changes in the, in the pharmacy contract with blood pressures, pill checks, and all of that kind of stuff, that's much needed cavalry actually for my GP centre because actually if that can be done, uh, people can be served in a, in a place that they will come to, then that allows my GP centre to con concentrate on different things. And I also notice people can get their prescription 24 hours a day. Well, we're very proud of this, Matthew. Let okay, me come so and show you, show, you a, show you a toy here. I love a gizmo. Um, we're standing outside two, um, I guess you might describe them as kind of pickup locker type devices yeah. um, that work 24 seven. Now, I guess for me, the NHS is often about stories. And, and I guess the story behind Graham Young was he was a, a pharmacist that was dedicated to his population for 40 years. Uh, the, 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 the legend of him is that if, for example, you had a sick child and you, your GP had prescribed antibiotics, he would open up his shop at three in the morning, he'd come down in his white suit, uh, and he would serve you the antibiotics that you needed. Right. Or if you needed some cowpole or something, and you'd run out, you'd knock on the door, and that's 365 days a year, Christmas, bank holidays, whatever, that's what he would do. And so I guess in that memory, we thought it was really important that actually for our patients and our community who often do shift work, the ability to pick up medicines at three in the morning or five in the morning by simply putting in their PIN number and then that releasing the medicine, you know, has been a real sort of, I guess, game changer for the community. And, and just to be clear, I'm, I'm standing here, this is a, uh, uh, there's a touch screen, you, 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 people presumably they get sent a PIN number through a, through a text. Exactly and they right. come along, yeah. there's a place for them to pay, put in the number and then the prescription like a vending machine just comes out here. Absolutely. And it works. You just look at something like this and you think, why would you not have this everywhere in three, you know, two or three years' time? So uh, 
Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely. And we're on a journey of automation. So this was one of the things that we were first very keen on. The second thing that's coming in in May, and I'm really hopeful that Amanda Doyle and Claire Filler are going to come and christen the robot. Uh, but there'll be a, a robotic dispenser there, uh, and that will be able to do sort of 25,000 scripts. And so what that will do is it will enable the staff to focus on people. So rather than getting medicines and putting them into a bag, the robot will do that. And that's going to really dramatically free, free people up to actually focus on giving people care and attention. And are you, because uh, you're, you're chair of the Federation, so that's Greater Peterborough... Greater Peterborough Network, yeah. Right. So uh, is this technology now something which is going to spread throughout the, 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 the Federation area, do you hope? I think, you know, the, the one that we're really keen on in the Federation is, is actually almost how do we automate systems and processes? So how do we free up clinical people or even HCAs like we met earlier to do people facing things and how do we use technology to do some of the filing the the automization and things like that's so like a hospital would have a whole team of ro robotic coders why can general practice not have that right. and actually if we can create that for Thistlemore in Peterborough why couldn't we create something that then works for the whole of Peterborough or maybe the whole of the country you know that's certainly our ambitions going forward today Peterborough tomorrow the world <laughs> <laughs>so here we are at the endoscopy unit so tell me about the kind of background to this yeah so i guess when when we built a lot of this infrastructure at that time we were a 14,000 patient practice and i think people thought what why are you building such massive infrastructure? And I guess we always wanted to have a very modern pharmacy like we, like we um, just, just saw now. We also knew that we needed a bit of space for ourselves. And, and um, at the top here, we'd, bought, we'd built some space that we thought could be apartments or something like that. And I guess the idea with this, the challenges that the NHS has, it's sometimes difficult for people to see that vision until something's actually in place. As we had built the building, we were approached by uh, InHealth, who are an endoscopy provider, uh, and they were providing services elsewhere in another GP practice, but were struggling because it wasn't the kind of purpose-built facility that they were after. Um, and so they built um, the, the, the endoscopy unit here, and that does all of the upper GI endoscopies and lower GI endoscopies, so colonoscopies and gastroscopies, for about 300,000 patients. So, right. um, so it's linked to the hospital pathway. So the hospital, I guess, are there to, to focus more on cancers or emergency cases and things like that. Whereas more of the kind of, I guess, routine uh, endoscopies or colonoscopies are done here. So, so what's the relationship with the consultants, for example, in the, in the hospital, that kind of sense of teamwork running from acute through to primary? Tell me a bit about, about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say it's not perfect. And so, you know, and some of it is because there are different different silos and waiting lists in different places, trying to get that connection, because I think integration sometimes is also about the IT, isn't it, and, and things like that. But, but I think there's really good, you know, the hospital consultants appreciate having a, a pressure valve here that they can release into, and it is hospital consultants that provide the governance of this unit. So, so some of the people that come here are GPs to do it, but the governance is through kind of, you know, the, the consultants basically supporting them. Hello, how are you? You right? Good. So we're in yet another. I'm, I'm so glad you're showing us around. <laughs> this is Zone D. Right. Uh, this is kind of our nursing wing. So we've got a team of uh, um, of nurses. Some of those. How many? So between 12 and 15. So at the moment um, we're closer to 15, but that's the range that we normally have. In that team. 
four of them are paediatric nurses. So in general practice, we've got four paediatric nurses. Wow. Part of that is because we've got a young population and obviously the paediatric nurses love helping our children who are struggling. Um, they also help with things like vaccine, you know, talking to people about vaccine hesitancy and things like that. Um, we've also now got a midwife. Uh, and so I think it's not that we want to deliver babies at Thistlemore, uh, but we want to kind of get some of the skills of the midwife and think through, given again, we've got a very fertile population, how do we care for them better? But also how do we take someone with those skills and how do we give them a platform to develop into general practice, I think is a really interesting concept wow and this story which we'll talk about more but the, the so many people here seem to be on a continuous journey of training and development that seems to me if i had to choose a theme from all this it wouldn't actually be the buildings and all that which is amazing all the other things it would be this this sense that this is such a learning organization one of the things we're most proud of i guess was you know in 1995 sheffield university came here spent five days because i guess a lot of the things and the platform that my parents created was controversial you know at that time nurses were not doing what nurses do now you know even doing a blood pressure was was controversial you know because actually that was a doctor's job you know let alone getting healthcare assistants involved in consultations and all of this kind of stuff and I guess Sheffield University was brought by the PCT chief exec at the time to I guess assess this model and consider is it safe is it effective is it well led and as part of that then actually what the conclusion was you're a learning organization right. and back to what you said I, I think for us we always love these hooks if we were a learning organization in 1995 what does that look like in 2005 what does that look like in 2023 how do we build upon the platform that we've already set so that we're not resting on our laurels but we keep innovating and keep kind of extending that going forward There's many ways upstairs, but I think we can go this way and then we go upstairs. So here we are in the, um, is this what, the boardroom or the... Oh, it's a training room. Training room. It's yeah. got a bit, you know, a, a big room. Lots of uh, photographs. I'm going to pick a couple of photographs, Neil, and ask you to tell me the story behind them. So I'm going to start with a picture... Uh, of your mother, who I, I had the privilege of meeting uh, 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 earlier. She's uh, getting her MBE here. And, and she built the foundation for all of this, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her story is, is an epic story of, you know, a Ugandan Asian coming over, 50 pounds to her name. She, she's still working here today. She's 70 years old. Uh, she's here probably more than me, um, often seven days a week, uh, thinking about clinical governance, uh, safety, improvements and things like that. Um, but I guess the reason why she got an MBE, um, it was for services to the NHS. A little bit of it, I guess, was the story. And like you said, you know, the, the, the growth story and things like that. But I guess it's pushing back on some boundaries. So it's, it's, it's taking nurses to the top of their game. It's importing a model of healthcare provision from America and applying it to England. So tell us, we haven't talked yet about the healthcare resistance story, which is, which is amazing to me. And your mother started that story. We met Paulina. T tell us about this kind of healthcare assistant model. Yep, so um, I think, uh, you know, we're in a very sad family. Everyone's a doctor, married to a doctor. Their dogs are doctors. Their cats are doctors. It's, it's a very medical family. Uh, and half the family are in, in England and half the family are in America. Uh, and my mum's my dad um, had things like heart failure and, you know, medical problems. And so when she was over there and accompanying him to appointments, what she remarked upon was the difference between what happens in the NHS and what happened in America at the time. And what happened in America at the time was there were a lot more people providing care. The idea was the consultant's brain makes the plan, but actually there's so many different people to do the various checks 
the blood, organize the blood tests and things like that. And so what I guess they reflected on, my mother and my father, my dad's also a GP, and they were working together, was if that can happen in one of the you know, most litigious countries in the world, if they can have safe practices that allow this to happen, why could that not happen in the UK? And so what they went down to basics, so how, what is the training? How does that work? What kind of sign-offs do people need? They took all of that material from America, personalised it to the NHS, personalised it to primary care, and went on a journey that kind of backed, I guess, giving people like Paulina the opportunity to train and develop to become healthcare assistants, and then to apply that in practice to help patient care. And how many healthcare assistants do you employ now? So now we've got 26 healthcare assistants. The, the, the traditional journey for a healthcare assistant is to start in reception. When we recruit, we're very clear to people that, look, this is a healthcare organisation. Everyone has a role in healthcare. You know, if you, if you want to come here and have an administrative role, that's not going to work because everyone has to be, do something to do with helping patients and, and feel comfortable talking to people and patients. Um, as they start in reception, they're taught some of the basics about kind of communication and things like that. They're taught how to do new patient medicals, you know, up to a certain point with guidance and supervision. Um, they're taught a bit about the repeat prescribing protocols and things like that, just to give them a taster and check that they understand that. At that point, they're doing their care certificates. They're getting the badge to be a healthcare assistant. And then at, at the point that we're happy, which is normally about six months, they then go into a HCA training programme. What we're always trying to drive is, you know, we're all here to provide people a really good service. What would make us sad is if you came in for a diabetic check, we didn't look you in the eye, we didn't check your feet, we just documented that we had, you know, none of that is acceptable. It's, we have got to have meaningful contacts with people. We've got to, as well as them helping us, because they're helping us with our quaff and things like that, we've got to help them a little bit. So how do you get that ethos of improving the population and getting them to take ownership of their health as well? Tell me a bit more about, because as we speak, we're awaiting, uh, I probably won't be published by the time this is broadcast, the, the, the workforce plan. What are you hoping to see in that workforce plan in terms of the kind of principles you've established of new roles, the scope for people to develop in those roles, the kind of integration of roles, this flexibility that you've achieved? I think you've hit it on the, on the head there, flexibility. I think we have bespoke our workforce to the needs of our population. I think every general practice or primary care centre uh, PCN should be able to do that and empowered to do that. I think actually, so what I, what I believe is that, you know, for us to fly, we need to work in an environment that is allowing and enabling, basically. Those are the key words that are so easy to say, yet so difficult to do. And so what I would love to see in the workforce plan is the ability to have more, more people. Uh, you know, I'd love to see the focus be on prevention. I think it's really important. Often that can be the thing that people forget about, but that should be front and centre. You know, a, a, a proactive, preventative self-care kind of part of general practice and primary care is really important and I think you know when we see the numbers and statistics of people that work in different sectors there is an opportunity for general practice there is an opportunity if we can embed people that may leave the NHS may leave the country actually if we can give them a home in an innovative center uh, you know that is general practice then actually that can be really good you know because actually although people might fear we're already losing midwives. What happens if too many come over? But actually, if we take the right amount over, that can, that can completely revolutionise someone's career and the um, contribution they make to the NHS.
Neil, you talked earlier about four years ago, obviously pre-COVID, as you opened up new facilities, bringing together the community and the workforce and the local authority and others, and talking about the priorities and that focus on prevention. So I guess the kind of $64 million question is, and maybe it's unfair because you've had COVID and the really tough winter, etc. but are you starting to see outcomes? Uh, so, yes. Um, yes, we are. Um, so I guess if I make it specific, I think, I think the, the thing that it brought home to me was that prevention is really important. And I guess how my mindset changed with that by going through that process was even in this big building that you see before you today, if we're honest, in 2019, we were very stingy in terms of who could use the building. The thought was, we're a medical centre, therefore doctors, nurses, my healthcare assistants, my team, that's what the building was for. And I guess as we opened up the thought to the, you know, the issue is prevention, one of the, uh, one of the most horrible bits of data that I see for my population, specifically Thistlemore Road surgery, the average age of, of an acute coronary event for my population is 47. No. The average age for an acute coronary event across Peterborough is 67. Now, when I've got populations that are having it at 47, I've still got people who are 80 having acute coronary events. So therefore, I've got people in my 30s and 40s having it. And a lot of that is born out of the population that I serve. Yeah? So it's not a lack of primary care, it's not a lack of general practice, it is genetic factors, it's cultural factors, it's behavioural factors. Uh, you know, a lot of my patients unfortunately start smoking at the age of 13. By the age of 23, they've got a 10-year pack history of smoking. Often that's two or three packs a day because of the nature of the jobs that they do, etc, etc. And that's not to blame them, that's the circumstances that they live in. And so you can see how important that prevention agenda is and I guess um, so taking that data you know we've got a problem and so and so the solution to that problem as we saw it by talking to the people that provide services was actually you know Dr Neil why don't you why don't you let us have some rooms and oh what about developing health and well-being coaches because that was coming out from Nikki Kanani and her team about a possibility and so we went big on health and well-being coaches we've got nine across our PCN with seven of them being here again in multiple languages and cultures and things like that the council then said well we're doing that we're doing the same agenda we want access to your population they're a really hard population to get hold of and as a gp i'm thinking well they're not that hard they come into my you know at that point there was a queue of 500 of them every single morning 500 patients that used to queue up as they and of course no don't interrupt but an important part of that connecting elements is that your healthcare assistants have been appointed from that population so your workforce strategy and your population engagement strategy are mutually complementary. And, and the reason for that, Matthew, is that what we found is that we would have consultations with someone in the morning, in an afternoon they go to a walk-in centre, in the evening they go to the hospital, and part of that was not because they were unhappy with the care, but I don't know how good your French is, but if I went to France and tried to explain to someone the medical problem that I had, I'd be left with a feeling that, have I communicated? Have they really understood? And how much do I know about the French health system and what I should, which door I should go into and shouldn't go into? So actually using that as a thought 
how do you get someone from the community to actually explain things? Because if I say to someone, oh, I'm really sorry, the NHS doesn't work like that, versus someone from their own community, from their own background saying, look, we know in Poland it's different, we know in England it's different, this is how England works, this is why the doctor's giving you this advice, and this is what they've explained you to do, that communication uh, you know, makes such a difference to people. Uh, uh, that takes me to another thing I want to ask, Kainil, which is, I firmly believe that the future of the health service relies in, in, in large part on our capacity to have a different kind of relationship with patients and different kinds of conversations with patients. So when it comes to ideas like shared care or anticipatory care, is that part of your story as well, that you're, you're wanting to engage patients much more as partners? Um, and, and, and that must be particularly challenging in a community like this with the language issues and the deprivation issues. It's both challenging, but a massive opportunity. Um, and so, you know, for example, you know, when it comes to outcomes, which you'd asked me about um, before, during the pandemic, we really struggled with our diabetic outcomes. So actually, we had one of the we had some of the best outcomes for for any population, let alone our inner city population. We had some of the be- before the pandemic because of the model of care that we had. You know, someone comes in with back pain, we grab them, do a diabetic check, take their bloods, do everything on the same day, and so we would get hold of the population with really good access. In the pandemic doors are closed, triaging everyone, minimal amount of footfall into the practice. Um, and so we, we were being almost named and shamed in a friendly, competitive way in the system to say, look, Thistlemore, you were doing really well, what's going on? And so what we had to use was some of the people to use technology to actually simple messages to people, are you free on Saturday to come in? At that point, making sure we could do the whole of the diabetic check, do the blood tests. And what we're really proud of is that we went from one of the lowest performers during the pandemic to one, you know, and that's using data on Eclipse, so on a software that that measures data. uh, And that has people from all around the country. By the end of that year, we were in the top 10 in the country of people that came in by adapting our approach. And I think that's the key, isn't it? Is back to your question, how do you both as a service think on behalf of people and what they might need, but as part of that, test that out, get feedback. And so one of the great things is because our population is so different and because they're from such a different background, it means that we feel that we have to ask them questions because, because actually we cannot simply think on their behalf because we, aren't, we haven't lived the life stories that they have. And so we've got a natural resource in our healthcare assistants and our clinical admin team that we've developed from that population, but we've also got these passionate people advocates uh, you know, that, that we can test things with and, and who will be very brutally honest about when things are not working. And, you know, and, you know I, I help manage a lot of the patient feedback, complaints and things like that. And I always think that that's such a great opportunity to, to learn from people. You know, obviously, there's a lot of negativity about the NHS and, and, and primary care and things like that. But actually, when people take the trouble to give you a complaint, to explain exactly how they've been let down and what they would like to see for the future, that's a massive opportunity to make things better. And, and Neil, do you, do you feel that you can improve the health of your population despite the fact that so much of what drives their health is beyond your, your control? Or, or I guess maybe it's your model to gradually be able to be more and more influential in terms of those things which, which influence their, their health. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I love the concept of, of 
anchor organisations and you know being part of the community. I really, you know, I really think that again back to that difference in thinking. This building was full of doctors and nurses. Now this building is full of people, including doctors and nurses, but other people, social prescribers, health and wellbeing coaches, people in the voluntary sector utilising the facility for drop-in clinics for the homeless or, you know, etc. That's what I think the future is. The future is not just looking through the single lens of the medical kind of model. It is about what, how do we use the opportunity that a thousand people will contact me a day to enrich that population. We're doing this, you know, part, we've been lucky on that journey. We, we often get tapped on the shoulder. So we were tapped on the shoulder by the system to say, look, you know, you, you are one of the most deprived um, practices. We've got this opportunity to do population health management. At the time I was in the fuller stock take leading population health management while along, alongside that, putting that into practice by, by doing a population health management project. And the project that we uh, that we focused on was working with Optum, who basically did the data gathering uh, and analysis for us. And we targeted people that utilise our facility 20 times or more a year and also utilise A&E five times or more. So that was the subsect of population that we focused on. And those aren't people with medical needs. They don't have renal failure. They don't have cancer. They, they are they are on paper, on the surface, low medical needs. That some of that overlaps with mental health and other issues. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, when I looked at the, the, the number of people and having worked here for 15 years, there were a lot of familiar names, uh, you know, as you can expect on that list. Um, and I guess the, the design of that work programme was one, to identify the people, two, to then think about how could we maybe impact on that? Because actually, you know, from a selfish way, if we can modify behaviour, so it's not 20 times a year, it's 10 times a year or five times a year, then actually that's going to make a difference to our clinical capacity. Uh, and actually, if we can identify what actually is the problem, what is the reason that they're contacting us, and actually then look to solve those issues, that seemed like the, the sweet spot. So over this winter, at the place-based level, we set up incentives for not just my PCN or my practice, but all PCNs to think about what what could they do to help their population, but also that might have a difference, you know, a measurable difference. And so our work was focusing on that population. So we did a motivational strength interviewing for all the people that were involved. Those people were not necessarily just doctors. Some some are doctors. Um, GP trainees, for example, are, are involved in that. But also health and wellbeing coaches, housing uh, people, and all you know people from all different sectors interviewing all of those people to identify what actually is the problem. And the conversations that we're having with our ICB is we're asking them, if three things can change in your life, what would they be? So we're gathering these lists of things that people want. And what we would love to do is, where services exist, connect them. And where services don't exist, think laterally, personalised care budgets. You know, what's the opportunity to maybe trial spending a little bit of resource on what matters most to an individual and doing an experiment to see, well, actually, if that drives down A&E attendances, if that frees up general practice capacity, that's a kind of model that you could really build upon. There's obviously a lot of focus, Neil, on the, uh, on the urgent emergency care pathway. And you're working in an interesting way with your ambulance service, I think. So tell, tell, me, tell me about that. One of our favourite projects is called the AMBO project, as we call it. Uh, and so what we, what we identified, I guess, is through the winter pressures, the narrative is the ambulance service is swamped. Um, there are people backing up into hospitals, etc., etc. We need to get upstream of that. 
And I guess if you look at that problem from a GP lens, I want to try and meet as much demand on the day as possible. I want to kind of get the people that, um, that actually need to be in hospital and get them to there. Uh, but the feeling was more could be done. And the thought that we had was that actually, if you look at the workload that an ambulance service has, there'll be some that are absolutely no-brainers. You know, someone's having a heart attack, someone is having a stroke. Absolutely, the best port of call is not a GP going to see them, or you know, or a paramedic from the GP service. It's someone who can go and quickly assess that situation and take that to where they need to go, which is normally one of the hospitals in our patch. However, we know that actually when you look then further downstream to where ambulances are going, so not category one and two, but categories three, four and five, we know that there are many cases there when you monitor data, such as the time to call out, the time can be really long. And that's not to insult the ambulance team because actually they are just really busy uh, and, you know, and cannot get to everyone in a speedy way. So the thought was, if we can be part of that pathway and if, if categories three, four and five could be triaged by our team, instead of waiting two hours for a phone call, we can, phone call, we can call them within five to 10 minutes. At that point, we can assess what the problem is and actually, you know, we can, instead of, you know, the average time at the time it was set up was about 14 hours for an ambulance to get out there. If we assess them within an hour, we can then hopefully stop someone deteriorating. And then around that, I guess the model that we've had with using healthcare assistance and things that actually, you know, our kind of, I guess, null hypothesis was that with these cases, it needs to be safe. It can't be, we've just seen someone here and, you know, we decided not to take it to hospital. We need to follow that up. So actually, and it doesn't need to be a doctor going around there to follow that up. It could actually be a healthcare assistant who's trained up to do blood pressure, temperatures, pulses, the, the basic observations that give us the security, check with the patient that they feel well and things like that. If not, that gets escalated back up. But if they do feel well, we will continue to comfort, call them or visit them over either a three or five day period and try and make sure that not only in that episode were they not taken to hospital, but over the next, I guess, week, that they're safe in their homes. Uh, and, and I guess it's a really simple concept, but it's, it's had some game-changing results in terms of workload and workforce. And although we started that quite small over Peterborough, the ambulance service loves it because actually, and that's back to my, you know, I think what, what would be worse in the health system at the moment is competing against each other. Things should be additive, should be supportive. We have to understand that you might need some double running costs as you start projects and things like that to allow the ambulance to, you know, to, 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 you know, to keep the, the workforce that they've got. But I guess in that scenario, what the thought is, is that we don't necessarily want the ambulance service's money. We want to free up the ambulance service to absolutely get to the heart attacks, the strokes, the, the cases that they need to, and not, I guess, be sidetracked by some of the lesser cases that, that our team can do. And the hope being that then beyond the ambulance service, the hospital then are dealing with the cases that they need to deal with and not having to deal with some of the other cases that would have to come in because of that delay. So Neil, I've got a last question for you, and and, and um, I'm just going to spit it out. And I'm sorry if it upsets uh, some people who are listening, but you know, I I'm fascinated by primary care. Some of the most inspiring people I've met in this in this job at the Confed have been GPs. But I'm going to be honest with you: when I speak to groups of GPs together at the moment, for the reasons that are completely understandable, generally the tone is one of pessimism. And kind of fatalism. 
I, I've met you before. You're often kind of wheeled out because you're so positive and because of what you've achieved. Do you have a kind of message for your colleagues about how it is they can have hope and optimism and, and entrepreneurialism in this really challenging environment where, and let's face it, you know, you're in a, in, a, in a city which I think is one of the most underserved by GPs in, in the country. That's when I talk to GPs who are pessimists, they often say, well, there just aren't enough of us. But you're in a city that hasn't got enough GPs. So what would be your message to your colleagues about, about how it is they create positivity in these challenging circumstances? I mean, I, I, I have to say that for me to continue um, working, I, I find that I need to be positive. So what I need to be doing is working in an empowering environment, and it's not always empowering, but, but take the rough with the smooth. Actually, what, we've, what we continue to achieve here is, is, is amazing. And so although I can remember the negatives of that journey, I should also remember the positives. I think a lot about it is how do we frame the problem? How do we frame our situation and frame the, the problem? And I guess I've grown up in a household where I've had two massive advocates in my mum and dad who, who, who continually have kind of reinforced that general practice is one of the best jobs in the country. It's challenging. You cry with patients, you, you go through journeys with patients and you, know, you hear some horrible things, but you've got such an opportunity to have really in-depth conversations problem solve, take people through some of the, the challenge, most challenging um, times of their lives. And so the nub of the job is a brilliant job. I guess how do you know, and I think for, for most people it's thinking through, if you are feeling that the situation is bad now, what are you going to do personally? What is your organisation going to do to make things better? And for me, it's always that balance of how do I make it better for my patients, but how do I make it better for my staff and my team? And I think, and I, I, equal, I, I value those equally. If I'm before the pandemic, I, I put patients up there higher. During the pandemic, and with all of the kind of you know challenges that staff have, mental health, financial, all of that kind of stuff, I think they're on the same platform. We should look after our staff and patients as one, you know. And and as part of that, how do you keep improving things? And I don't, you know, I don't want to work in a system that, for example, gets the same money for doing the same thing each year. I think getting that sweet spot of looking at the opportunities, picking two or three things that you want to do, and be proud of what you achieve. Learn when you fail, but be, be prepared to experiment. And when you do experiment, be honest about it when it doesn't work. But when it does work, celebrate that. Um, you know, and so, so, so for me, a lot of it is trying to get my colleagues alongside me locally, but also I'm very happy to do that regionally or nationally to kind of, I guess, look at the situation that they're in and reframe that, reframe that as a position of opportunity. I think what's great with all of these reviews, with all of these commentaries, with all of these, you know, do we need 5,000, do we need 6,000, do we need 8,000 GPs? We need more GPs. The, the, the point is people value general practice. People see the need of the function of general practice to, to expand, to do more, to be there more for the population. How do you use that as an opportunity? How do you use the data which tells us we've not got enough GPs? What is the solution? Now, one of the areas that we're thinking about being involved with at the moment is the primary care doctors pilot. So actually, you know, thinking about people moving who have been in the hospital sector or other things over to general practice. And although people could see that as a negative, that actually, why are you robbing Peter to play Paul? Or, you know, but actually, it's an opportunity. If you've got someone that's disenfranchised in wherever they are, whatever, if they've got the opportunity to stay in the country, stay in the NHS, and add value to another sector, why wouldn't we allow it and enable that to happen? And 
you know, as I go around the country, uh, Neil, to speaking to system leaders, trust leaders, primary engagement is the big. I would say is the single biggest variable. So I think part of your story is that you've got involved in the place conversation, the Fed conversation. Now that's not for everybody. But it is important, isn't it, that primary care does get engaged in that system, place in the system conversation, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think people look at my diary and think, how, you know, how do you manage this, you know, alongside having two kids and all of this kind of stuff. The truth is, it nourishes my soul. I get benefit from being a GP in the practice. I also get benefit in learning at place level, federation level, and looking at how scale, can, you know, can get there. And I think each area should should be looking for. I guess the people that do do those things and I guess do it with the right ethos. So what a lot of this is not about is how do I use these agendas to make it better for Thistlemore? A lot of it's about how do I use these platforms and these opportunities to create the space to make it better for any GP practice, PCN, place level organisation to flourish. You know, because I believe there's room in the NHS for leadership, there's room for clinical leadership, and there's room for service providers, as long as they're focused with the right principles. And so that, I think, is our job. I completely agree with you. Neil, thanks so much for your time. It's been inspirational. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming down to see us to Peterborough. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast.